morning. Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. It is, oh, it is unlike any other Sunday, but it is just, should be just like every other Sunday. It is a day that we celebrate Christ being risen. And as I have looked around and greeted you this morning and seen the chaos and seen the craziness and experienced a little bit of it, I still think if the Lord would just allow me to take a video of this in my mind and remember this so that I can just cherish this for forever because this is right where I want to be. And I couldn't think of any other place or any other group of people that I'd rather be with. So thankful for you. Sunday has come. Today we can sing, we can pray, we can rejoice and have hope because Sunday has come. Of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of our Savior. I'm referring to the actual historical Jesus who lived in an actual time on earth, who is the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, who was slaughtered for our sin and in order that the wrath of God might be satisfied, whose body was torn just like the veil of the temple to show that we have unhindered access to the Father through Jesus Christ, whose blood was poured out over our iniquity in order that our sins which marred and dirtied us would be purified and cleansed. And as the prophet Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, you shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And that through this resurrection, we too would rise and we would walk in newness of life. This is the simple and the basic gospel that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he is risen. We can say amen to that. We can, there you go, we can rejoice in our hearts and out loud. As much as the resurrection of Christ and the grace he offers redeems our spiritual life and redeems our emotional state, we often live in a way that the understanding of the resurrection of Christ misses the mark as it concerns to redeeming our condition, redeeming our heart. This is what Paul was dealing with in Romans 6, and this is where our text will be today, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Paul is laying out a theological ethic in the book of Romans for the churches at Rome, but also for all of those who would read Romans. And at the end of chapter 5, Paul is discussing the law and the grace that comes through Jesus. And he finishes chapter 5 by saying, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. What Paul is laying out there, and it is a constant New Testament theme, is that the grace of God is greater than the sin of man. And that where with man, this is the point, not that sin should abound, 
but that with the natural man, sin will abound. But with the God, grace abounds even further than sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And so you have heard it and you believe it that you are never too far away from God, that you are never out of His hand, that no sin is too great to be forgiven, which are all things that I hold to be true. But what we see in chapter 6 is also a cautionary tale. Paul says, where sin abounds, or excuse me, Paul said where sin abounds, grace abounds even greater. But in chapter 6, we see this idea is a, it's a conditional idea. It's a conditional thought. It's a conditional statement. So I want to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 with you today. And I want to see what the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, says about the mortification of sin and the resurrected life. Paul here is answering, he has given this great speech on sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds. And he's answering any detractors at this point. Because people would say, well, if that's the case, then why do we need to even do right? Why do we even need to follow the Lord? You know, this is coming from a Jewish history. A Jewish ethic would say, do right, follow the law, and you can have favor with God. And then as you continue to follow the law and obey the law, you can have favor with God. Well, Jesus brought a different ethic, and Paul is promoting this Christian ethic. Paul is saying that the right was done by Jesus to where grace abounds even greater than the law, even greater than our sin. But he was never, you must understand, he was never given giving people a license to do whatever they wanted to do. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. And we see that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And we'll read that now. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Uh, Another version that I memorized in the past said, May it never be. May it never be. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Man, those are two questions that you must ask yourself every day. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's very important. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Praise the Lord. This this this, This verse should have you jumping out of your chair right now. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. He lives to God. 
so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives this charge. He goes back to what he said at the beginning of the chapter. He said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Pray with me this morning. Lord God, we open this text of Scripture, we open every text of Scripture, and your goodness pours out. Your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness, your steadfastness, your justice, your righteousness, it pours out. And all we can do is praise. All we can do is thank you. Lord, but we see also from Paul a great call to holiness. Not only are you good, but you are holy, and you expect us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, would you set apart, would you set us apart as instruments of good use? That we would follow you, that we would live for you, that we would love you enough, Lord, to obey you. That we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual act of worship. We praise you today. We love you today because not just because of what not just because of this one day, Lord. Help us not to be seasters, Lord. Help us not to be people who only worship on Christmas and Easter, who only really focus on what you've done at Christmas and Easter, Lord, but help us to be people who focus on you in our daily lives, to be baptized into you. We pray and ask that you would bless this service, bless your word as it sprouts forth today and takes root in the heart of man. We love you and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Today I want us to look deeper into the resurrected life and the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin is simply this, killing off our old self that we may be raised to walk in a life like Christ. It is so easy for us, friends, to take a tacit approach to sin, meaning this, that it is sort of implied in our life that Jesus died for me, that he died to take away my sin, that it might be forgiven, and that the wrath of God might be satisfied. It is true that as a Christian, I'm supposed to live a good life. But oftentimes, this understood approach to sin and the gospel leads us to believe that we take a passive role in our faith. We understand the gospel. We cherish the gospel. We are alive because of the gospel. And we know the gospel transforms us. But we don't realize that we have to fight to put the same energy into gospel transformation as we fight to put energy into other things in our lives. Often we simply see ourselves as role players in the mortification of sins and not as active participants when this simply couldn't be less true. 
The truth is, as Paul was describing in Romans 5, that we were formerly of a life where sin was abounding. We were immersed in sin, meaning we sinned actively, we sinned passively, it was on the front of our hearts and minds and even in our subconscious. But then in chapter 6 he says, May that not be you now. May that never be the case again for those who are in Christ. Not only did grace abound all the more over sin throughout the world, but grace abounds in the heart of every believer. This is one of the greatest effects of the gospel. Where sin was once abounding, where sin once ruled the person in their life, where they were once immersed in a life of sin. For those who are in Christ, the reign of sin is over. And it has been replaced with an abounding, an overflowing, a great measure of the grace of God. So that all who belong to Christ do not have to be a slave, do not have to be immersed, do not have to abound in sin any longer, but can abound in the grace of Christ and the riches that come with His grace and mercy. Paul asked two questions after sort of explaining this idea in Romans chapter 5. He asked two questions, and I want to frame our service around those two questions today. The first question is this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he said, by no means, and then he asked this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? I want you to take on those two questions as we go throughout the rest of this service today. I want you to hold on to those. These are great questions because the concept of receiving a resurrected life and living uh, and, and a living life through Jesus and claiming all of the benefits of faith and love and acceptance and forgiveness and hope, a future, and being unaffected by that and allowing sin to reign in your life would not compute with Paul. He could not comprehend a people who would have received all of the benefits of a resurrected life and not received one of the primary benefits of the cross. And one of the primary benefits of the cross is the mortification of sin. Friends, often we confuse it. We think, well, God took on sin to forgive me at the cross. That's right. The most important thing that you need to know, though, about that is that God took on sin to remove it from you at the cross. Not just to forgive you so that you can keep on just dinking and dunking away at sin as you want to, but to remove it from you so that it would not have a hold in your life. It would not have its place, its home in your life. Claiming all the benefits of Christ, the faith and love and acceptance, the fellowship of believers, forgiveness, hope, future, and, not, and being unaffected by that in your sin life and in your life that you live in this world is such a foreign concept to the New Testament writers, to God, to all Christians alike that Paul thought it was necessary 
to talk about it. He died for the mortification of our sin. To kill sin. Christ bore the sin of mankind on his shoulder. He took it with him to the cross in a spiritual sense. But in another sense, he has taken that from the cross and he has buried that sin with him. And only one of them rose on Easter morning. Where Christ is eternally alive, the sin that he took and buried is perpetually and eternally dead. So I want to propose to you two questions today, the same ones that Paul gives us in Romans. And then I want us to look at three ways that we can mortify sin in our life and live resurrected lives. Will you continue in sin so that grace will abound? How can we who died to sin still live in it? I propose to you the same answer that Paul gave to the church at Rome. In the ESV it says, by no means, but in other translations it says, may it never be. I would say this to you today with a confident assertion, Christian. The written word of God is the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus. But another great proof way up there of the resurrection of Jesus is Christians who live immersed in Christ and resurrected lives. Through this text, I see three components. Three components of our mortification of sin and our ability to live resurrected life, lives through Christ. And I want to share those with you today. We can mortify sin in our body and live resurrected lives because the first thing is this. Christians are immersed in Christ. Christians are immersed in Christ. Look at chapter, uh, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, over the course of three, these three points, I want to display for you how sin is mortified in our lives, how we live resurrected lives. But in the same way, I also want to display to you that, excuse me, I also want, to dis, I want these ways to display for you that you can be in Christ and Christ can be in you and that can change you in a way that you might have thought was never possible. And the first thought is this. We are immersed in Christ and no longer immersed in sin. Paul said, do you not know that you have been immersed in Christ? And if you are immersed in Christ, we have been immersed in his death. And if we are immersed in Christ, then we therefore are buried with him in the baptism. That's, the, that's immersion. The immersion of death so that we might also be raised with him to walk in newness of life. <clears throat> that word baptism comes from the word baptizo. And the word baptizo here is transliterated as opposed to translated. Transliterated means they took the words of the Greek and they just, they wrote out what it looked like. Baptizo, baptized. They transliterated. 
Translated would have meant this. Baptizo almost exclusively means immersed. And so what is happening here is Paul is saying, not just that you have been baptized, not, it has nothing to do with a water baptism. It is everything to do with the fact that you are immersing your life in Christ. <clears throat> you have surrounded, you have clothed yourself in Christ. And therefore, just as Christ has died in the flesh, we likewise, who are immersed in Him, are now dead to our sin. Our old life, it was marked or it was immersed in sin. And our new life is marked or it's immersed in Christ. And we are immersed in most of the ways He was. He was tempted. We are tempted. He was persecuted. We are persecuted. He was treated unfairly in other ways. We are treated unfairly. Now it gets a little more spiritual. He was crucified, dead and buried. We are crucified, not in our flesh, but to our old life, handed down from the first Adam. We are immersed with Christ. Immersion in Christ is a sure sign of someone who belongs to Christ. So what does it mean? What does it look like? Immersion to Christ is simply this. It means being a killer of sin. We know in our salvation we are passive. We don't do anything for God to open our heart, for God to save us. But in our daily life of killing sin, we have an active role. <clears throat> we are saved so that our mind and our hearts are redeemed in order that we can make choices daily to follow God. It is a pursuit of a new life and a reckless abandonment of an old life that you had in the first Adam. It is a longing for the things of Christ. It is a behavior for a life that is new, a life that is a new creation in Christ. Immersion is being clothed in, completely surrounded by Christ. Immersion is forgetting where Christ begins and where you end. We see this in Galatians 3. For all of you who were immersed in Christ have now clothed yourself in Christ. It is a wearing of new clothes, a new identification badge, a new name. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I am I'm free. I'm free to drink what I want. I'm free to eat what I want. I'm free from the law. I am free in Christ. But instead of taking my liberties to the extreme, I immerse myself in Christ and I become all things to all people. I immerse myself in Christ and I become Christ to all people. And then he, and he says this about killing sin and I think it's wonderful. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under my control, lest preaching to others I myself might be disqualified. Paul says... I am free through Christ, but instead of glorying, instead of relishing in my freedom, instead of flaunting my freedom for the world to see, instead of partaking of the things that I am free to do, I beat my body into submission. 
I focus my energy on the target, and that target is Christ, so that I am not like the boxer who is boxing air or the person who is training for no goal. I keep my body under my control for the sake of Christ. Why does he work so hard to mortify these things in his life? When he is free in Christ, he answers this at the end of the passage. He says, so that I might not find myself in preaching to you disqualified. I kill sin. I beat my body into submission because my old life has been taken up to the cross at Mount Calvary, has been sacrificed there, and now I am free. Submission to God through the mortification of of sin is a choice that you make if you are in Christ. It is an every morning decision. But how does this come out practically? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I will get called on streams of videos on Facebook and it will be like street fights and, um, I don't know, people flipping cars and uh, watch this person fall to their death from the skyscraper or whatever it is. You know, it's like all these weird videos that Facebook or YouTube take you down. And I'll watch 20 videos and I'll feel, oh, just like feel yuck about it. And I'll fill myself with Netflix and you can bet Memphis is in the heart of recruiting for basketball. You can bet I'm on this 247 Memphis sports site almost every day. I will listen to political podcasts. I will immerse myself in things that I enjoy, and then I relate it to my faith, and I wonder if I immerse myself into Christ the same way. And I think, then how do I even do that? How do I even do that? And I think back to what Paul says in Ephesians. And he says, whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is right, whatever is true, if it's lovely, if it's, if it's worthy of praise, you know what I do? I think on these things. And the first step to immersion in Christ is not necessarily cleaning up all of the things of your life. It's not necessarily getting everything right. But it is immersing your mind and your heart, the things you intake, into the things of Christ. What's good and holy, acceptable, praiseworthy, what's right, what's true. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily choice, friends. You didn't have a choice in Christ. Christ saved you regardless of yourself, in spite of yourself, through His grace and love and mercy. But He has given you a free will and a choice to choose Him daily. It is an effort. It is a choice. But, But friends, listen. There is also a great confidence that comes with this. Because if we are immersing ourselves in Christ, He will reign supreme in our life. And that means we reap the benefits and the rewards of a king who is good reigning over us. It means we reap the benefits of conquering sin. We are able to defy temptation, defy sin. It means we are able to have strength in sharing and proclaiming the gospel to the world. It means we're able to have strength in our relationships. We're able to overcome the great obstacles that we face in our friendships, in our marriage, in our relationships, because we are in Christ. We have confidence in the world, and I hope this helps you. And if you were at the, uh, the co-op the other day, I used this example for the first time, and you're going to get this today. I hope this helps you because it's helped me. And I forgot to ask Ellie for permission to talk about her today, but I'm going to. I think it'll be okay. Ellie loves softball. 
And because she loves it, I love it. And because she plays, I want her to be good. I don't, listen, all, this is a side sermon. If you think that your kids should just participate and have fun, you're not being biblical. Biblical is this. Be good at whatever you do for the glory of God. He didn't say, he, he even went past sports. He said, if you're going to eat, if you're going to drink, be the best at it. Not so you can brag, not so you can find hope in that, but so that you can give praise to God. I want Ellie to be good. I want her to be best. And Ellie and I have a goal for her to make the all-star team this year. And she's going to do it. I, I believe it. I know it. I've seen it. So what we've done is we've practiced. We have immersed ourselves in softball. We've watched videos together. We've done drills together. I bought a net and we hit in the garage together. Well, she hits. I just watch. But what we hit, but Ellie struggles also with a belief of inability. She at times doesn't think she can do it. And even if she thinks she can do it, she's super shy. So this is obviously really good for me to do with her in here. She's super shy. And she, it, it, she struggles sometimes with crowds and cheering and yelling and all kinds of stuff like this. So I say to her before every game, and I think it relates greatly to those who are mortifying sin in the flesh, who are immersing themselves in Christ. I look at her square in the eye and I say, Ellie, have you practiced up? Do you know what you're doing? Is God on our side? Do we have anything to fear? Have you practiced up? Yes, Daddy. Do you know what you're doing? Yes, Dad. Is God on our side? Yes. Do we have anything to fear? There's a delayed no there always. Friends, I want you to know, if we are immersing ourselves in Christ, we are practicing up. If we are immersing ourselves in Christ, we, are, we know what we're doing. If we are immersing ourselves in Christ, Christ is in us and he is with us. He's on our side. Christian, you have nothing to fear. Those, the life, that old life, those old sins, they don't have the power over you like they did. That hurt that you have from past relationships, from being hurt by different people, that has no power over you. Those sins that so easily entangle us, if we are practiced up, if we know what we're doing, if God is on our side, we're, go we're golden. We are golden. We have no fear. Friends, we are no longer immersed in our old lives, but we have been immersed in Christ, and our life should emulate that. Another true proof of Christ in our life and the mortification of sin is, is that Christians are resurrected with Christ. Christians are resurrected with Christ. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. <clears throat> For one who has died has been set free from sin. Weary sinner. Weary brother and sister in Christ. You are free. No longer is the yoke of slavery upon your neck. 
but the yoke of Christ is. And he has promised and guaranteed that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Not only are you raised to eternal life with him, which the Bible says that, no one or nothing can snatch you out of his hand, but you are raised to walk with him in newness of life while you are on this earth. You no longer have to be immersed in sin. You no longer have to wonder if you can do it. And we all await through this resurrection, we all await a glorious future with him. And like the wonderful song, Come Thou Fountain says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed in the blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy wondrous grace. Today we rejoice because Jesus is not a distant God. He is not a God out in space or in a tomb. He is not some transcendent God. He is a God who condescended, who took on flesh. He took on our wrath. He nailed our sin to the cross and he proclaimed with an assuring voice, it is finished. Sin is defeated. Death has no victory. The work of the first Adam is wiped away and the angels in heaven rejoice with the victorious second Adam. Since Christ has died and we have died, since Christ is raised and we are raised, all Christians can now rejoice together. Dear brother and sister, you are not who you once were. You are not marked by past fornication. You are not marked by abortion. You are not marked by pornography. You are not marked by addiction to power or greed or acceptance or love. You are not marked by addiction to alcohol or drugs. The mark of your life is not the things that were nailed to the cross on Jesus' back. No, friends, the mark of your life is the empty tomb. The mark of your life is that Jesus and sin went to the cross and only Jesus came back alive. And that if we die with Christ, the only thing left is a resurrected life. Does this mean that we will never sin? Certainly not. Paul knew that. The New Testament authors knew that. They understood that sanctification was a process and it was a lifelong process. But they also understood that sanctification was a sure mark of resurrection and the resurrection was a mark of being in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are alive forevermore. There's one more point I want to make and I've made it a million times, but it cannot be overstated. So I will say it again. Christians are kept by Christ. Christians are kept by Christ. Look at verses 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to, excuse me, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. For the death, listen, this is important. Perseverance of the saints. This is important. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can take that so you too also and you can say it this way. In the same manner. In the same manner. Way as Christ is eternally 
Has, Christ has eternally killed sin, and as he is alive to God evermore, if you are in Christ in the same manner, you are dead to sin and alive forevermore. Oh, church, something so sweet and so pure is that since Christ has died and been raised, he will never die again. And as verse 8 says, if we have died with Christ and we believe we also live with him, verse 10, and just as he will never die again, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Since he died and raised, since he will never die again, you too must also consider yourself in the same manner. Dead to sin. Alive to Christ forevermore. It is such a wonderful truth, such a wonderful life-changing reality, the resurrection of Christ. It was permanent, not just for him, but for us also. And if we are in Christ as long as we, as long, excuse me, if we are in Christ as long as he is alive, we will be alive also. If we are in Christ, we are His forevermore, and nothing, no one, can snatch us out of His hand. I want to close by asking this question to you today. Why then would we ever try to nail Christ back to the cross? Why then would we ever try to nail Jesus back to the cross? Paul closes out this section and he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God (coughs) as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Church, when we submit to sin, we are not only transgressing the law of God, but we are practically trying to reverse the work of the gospel. We are trying to pick Jesus up, take him out of heaven, put him back in the grave, take him up to Mount Calvary, and put him back on the cross for all intents and purposes. Jesus, hope that didn't crack. Jesus, I'm not going to let y'all see if it did. We're good. Jesus, you stay here. You stay here. Because just this little taste of pornography is more important to me. You stay here. You stay on the cross, Lord. Because my pursuits in this life, my passion in this life, it's more important to me. You stay on the cross because my electronic devices, my my passion to be a social media star, to be seen, to be known, to be heard, it's more important to me. Jesus, you stay here because my personal time I need to overindulge in, in, in laziness. It's more important to me. Jesus, you stay here because vengeance against this person. 
You stay here because I need to tell somebody about what this person's done to me. Jesus, you stay here because I'm going to handle my marriage my way, and I'm going to raise my children my way, and I'm going to treat others my way. Church, if we have died to Christ, if we are raised with him, then why would we do everything we can to nail him back to the cross? Why then do we take, instead of taking Jesus from the cross, why do we go to the cross and take our sins and say, Jesus, you've been good to me, but this has also been good. And chain ourselves back to the things that he died for. Instead of taking on the full measure of the grace and the love and the mercy and the goodness that comes through the cross of Mount Calvary and the resurrection, we'd rather chain ourselves to the old life. We'd rather chain ourselves to our sin. We'd rather shackle ourselves back to a life that was no good for us in the first place. May it be said of us that we pursue Christ more than the flesh. May it be said of us that we don't go seeking the things that are dead, but pursue the Christ who is alive forevermore. Pray with me. Lord, that we would immerse our lives in you, that we would live resurrected lives, and that we would find confidence and hope in the fact that if we are yours, we are yours and alive forevermore. Lord, we love you so much. We are so changed and, and different because of what the cross has done. Lord, let that be something that runs in our life every day. Help us to be immersing ourselves in you so that there's no room for an immersion from any other side, any other place. Not that we can't enjoy the things of this life. Not that we can't enjoy the things that you've given us to enjoy. But that we don't put them over you, therefore making an idol out of the things and not the giver of the perfect gifts. God, we love you so much. We praise you. We ask that you would just be honored by our life, be honored by the testimony that we've given that others might see you and know that Jesus is alive through the life that we live. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.